0: You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. Discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, welcome everyone to Fathoms. Uh, Drew, <laughs> if you could only see Drew right now, he went all emo. Um, oh, man. If you just... Fits you, my mood right now. If, t- <laughs> if you took his plaid shirt away, then... then it does yeah. kind of mess yeah. it up. <laughs> but, and uh, you may you may hear Abram is perhaps not in the most secluded, isolated sound area. Um,
1: I'm in the one and only Crema Coffee in Nashville, Tennessee. If you come ever visit, yes. you want to check this yeah. place out. And he's Crema's not great. in a
2: studio because those are really hard to find in Nashville.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, so... This gives you a bit of a glimpse into the lives of how efficient and put together we are as Fathoms, yeah. the podcast. Um, super professional, and we always we always record in the pristine environments. Um, <laughs> but uh, so this this week we have one of my dear friends. Dr. B, Dr. Kristen Beasley. Ah, Dr. B. Yes. She is a clinical psychologist specializing in early childhood development. And the great thing about this is she and I actually have a podcast as well. It's been in the works for a while. And it's just, it's a really, it's a fun, it's a fun podcast that I think really delivers some phenomenal value when it comes to... Parenthood, how to raise children, how to deal with trauma. This past season was about generational differences. Um, just a really wonderful human and brilliant as all get out. So real quick, Jens, what, if you can think back to that interview, what is, what is one thing that maybe stood out for you?
2: Oh, I'd say her wisdom regarding our stories, especially as children and all of the insights regarding resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of hang- hand-wringing right now over the, the youth of today and their lack of resilience. And I think Dr. B gives some real, just pure gold in terms of, okay, we can have that narrative, but there's also so much good that can be done in this life. Yeah, so she was. she's brilliant.
1: Yep. Yeah. 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 I would uh, agree with that. Uh, uh, I also think for me, you know, her expertise on ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, you know, kind of the the percentage of if you, how many of those you have, you kind of inform what your kind of adulthood will look like. Mm But also just the the fact that she talked about the hope that we still have, even though maybe our childhood had lots of ACEs, uh, what... We live in a world that uh, you know brain science tells us new things about what we're capable of, which is really hopeful and exciting so
0: mm, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah so I hope you all enjoy this episode I, I think it's definitely one of one of the ones that I was most excited about having for this season I'm an actual psychologist talking about things <laughs> she actually doesn't know she doesn't know a bunch about the Enneagram but as you'll as you'll see as um, as you listen, she it it starts tying in very quickly to the enneagram and and the stuff that we're working on so hope you enjoy and make sure to go check out her instagram and uh and the podcast delusional optimism which i'm a co-host on as well so without further ado here's dr b Uh,
3: (laughs) I used the word fathom in a sentence the other day, though, because I learned it from you
1: guys.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I was like, it was just, oh, I can't even remember how I used it, but I was like, use it carefully. Fathoms, the depth of something. Yes. I was like, that is the coolest word ever. That warms (laughs) my
0: heart. Educating (laughs) educating America. I love it. One percent of the time. Yeah. (laughs) So. So we are here with... We are here with Dr. B, aka Kristen Beasley. Do do your friends call you Dr. B or like what's what is
3: well I have a lot of names. So you guys <laughs> you can call me Kristen, it's fine. <laughs> Lots of people call me Kristen. Most people call me a version of B or BB because I'm a grandparent. Uh-huh. And so my granddaughter and all children almost refer to me as BB. Aw. Because of that,
1: oh,
2: a lot
3: of my adult friends who work with me, instead of saying Dr. B, they'll just say, hey, B, 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 what, you know, they just call me B. Or sometimes people call me KB or they call me Kristen. So, you know, yeah. it just, and then, my yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> I answer to a lot of things. I never answer to Christy or Chris. Okay. That just doesn't no.
0: feel right at okay. all. So, Christy, no. yeah.
3: Christine, my name isn't even Christine, but people say that sometimes. They're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa that is not my name." Um, but <laughs> Yeah, you have all Christy these other options. Chris, just
2: pick
0: one that
3: <laughs> Yeah, you have all these other options. Just call me BB if you if in doubt, call me <laughs> yeah. BB. So
0: Yes. Um, awesome. So, Dr. B and I we do this, we do another podcast called Delusional Optimism which you all should check out as well. So, Dr. B, I, in the time that I've known you, as soon as I started editing your podcast, that's how the, this relationship started. Yeah. As soon as I like started hearing your ideas, how you were approaching things from science and, and psychology and all those other things, I, I was, it was like the only podcast that I enjoyed <laughs> editing. 'Cause it's right up and our alley. Our and he edits it's our podcast. As as <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Well what? that's
3: sweet. I, I just, love that. I, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And as soon as I heard you talking, I'm like, oh, we gotta have our own fathoms. Thank
3: like you and that
0: was like what? Yeah, I don't know. We've been working together for like a yeah, year. Yeah, it's over been a over a year.
3: Yeah. Wow. We're yeah. Starting our season um, too. So
0: the work that you do. Um you're self-employed. I am
3: self-employed.
0: So, how do you make the money is come into <laughs> the bank thing?
3: Wow. Okay, that's a big question. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Um <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> what my goal, passion, purpose is to build the psychoeducational awareness, vocabulary, knowledge base mm. of all people mm. because we don't have enough professionally trained mental health providers in to serve everybody yeah. on an individual level and i believe that this is just basic educational information that people can use and learn from and then work use with each other to heal and grow and transform and educate mm. and parent and partner so i decided to create leave a life print academy where people can go to access educational classes around all kinds of different areas related to psychology neurobiology and parenting and and use that as a way to understand mental health in a in a very i'm not going to say generic way because it is very depthy it's Mm -hmm. it's deep psychology but it's also accessible and it's manageable and meaningful and it, we take complicated concepts and put them in manageable, easy to understand strategies mm-hmm. for daily life, I guess.
1: Yeah. Dr. B, I will say that I have listened to a handful of your, your episodes on the podcast and from a personal experience, yes, you're, you're mm-hmm. talking about really in-depth, seemingly super complex topics, but making them incredibly accessible for the the layperson i've mm-hmm. i and i'm super thank into psychology you. and all these different things that you're addressing as well but uh, what i've heard from you is you're just really distilling down uh these massive things that you could probably read about your whole life but making sense of it yeah. really well mm. and i really appreciate that I've, I've experienced that too
3: thank you yeah, yeah. thank you so much because yeah. that is my that is my goal is and Seth hears me say this all the time. you know my my I love littles. I call them littles and but I want littles to be able to understand their emotional landscape mm. inside themselves mm. and to be able to navigate that and when they need help to be able to ask somebody who also can navigate their emotional landscape. That's my dream for the world. And and it's it's probably inspired by my precious granddaughter, but lots of littles I've had in my life where I've, you know, this has been my my professional work for a long time. So that is my goal, that I try to to make conversations about hard things not feel scary or hard. Mm-hmm. So thank you for saying that though, because yeah, yeah. It, it makes me f- feel good that I am that I'm doing it in some, in some way. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is you are a clinical psychologist specializing in early childhood development. Is that correct? Correct. And so with our theme this season being stories Mm -hmm. and like the three parts of those stories of knowing and accepting your story, knowing what stories to drop and knowing the stories of others. So in early childhood development, There are, this is the beginning of your stories. This is laying the groundwork, the highways, as you like to call it. (laughs) This is a very large question that I like, maybe just try to distill (laughs) it down like you do. How are our stories built? Like, just very basic. Okay.
3: So, our stories begin with our. Well, really prenatally, but we don't need to go there. Let's Ooh. just say when you when you are <laughs> born and your brain is developing, in the first three years of life, 80% of those roadways are developed. Mm. None of the cars are on them necessarily yet. Very few of them anyway. Mm. So that's the pathway for our stories. Those are the roadways mm-hmm. for our stories. So that helps us to say, okay, you know, I'm going to write from right to left. I'm going to do, you know, there are all the rules are sort of set in place, the infrastructure. So that's the first three years of life. So right off the bat, I want everybody to ping. This is super important. Pay attention. First three years of life, you need to be on it. You need to invest your time and money and energy and love and heart in that period of time. But that's just the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get to stop there. But that that's the beginning and that's mm-hmm. where then all the experiences we have become our stories on those pathways. Mm-hmm. So they become the chapters mm-hmm. of our books, really.
0: That's great. Along those lines, you are also somewhat of an expert on aces. Can you give us a quick overview of what are aces and how do th- how do those play into our stories and affect so, us? So
3: there's been a lot of research done over the past 3 decades really around How trauma or adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, that's the acronym, impact a person's mental health and physical health across the lifespan. So we didn't really know that before. We didn't know that you could potentially become diabetic because you have trauma in your childhood Mm. or have be more at risk of asthma or other physical health things that we thought, oh, this is separate. Mm. Physical health is over here. Mental health is over here. Now we know that adverse childhood experiences, trauma before the age of 18, actually correlate to mental and physical health consequences from depression, anxiety, suicide, early death up to 20 years. So some Hmm. of those, the research is based on a man named Vincent Felitti, Dr. Felitti's work. And there are 10 ACEs that he used in his original study, and I'll just rattle them off. And if you want to know more about mm. ACEs, just Google Adverse Childhood Experiences, because yeah. we go can- go
0: listen to the podcast, <laughs> Delusional Optimism. Or
3: just go listen to the podcast, <laughs> Delusional Optimism. Yeah. But there, there are five that live in the, the house of the personal, and then there are five that live in the house of the family and family dysfunction. Mm. So we have physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. Mm. Then and the difference between emotional abuse and emotional neglect is emotional neglect is I don't even see you. You don't exist. You're in front of me but I mm. just you're irrelevant to the universe, which sends writes the story I am unworthy. I'm worthless. Emotional abuse is you are a terrible horrible Person, you're never going to amount to anything. It's an active way of saying you're bad, Mm. you know, and Mm -hmm. it's and that writes that story. And sometimes it's both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the personal. Now we go to the family dysfunction that are the other chapters. A parent or caregiver with struggles with a mental illness, a parent or caregiver who struggles with addiction, a parent or caregiver who's been incarcerated. Mm. Uh, imprisoned. A child witnessing their mother being treated violently, so domestic violence. The last one is the loss or abandonment of a parent or caregiver, so through death, divorce, or just them leaving. is. Uh, th- those are other chapters that we can write into our story as a child. So adverse childhood experiences happen before you're 18, and those are only 10 and I would, you know, and I think most people in this community would agree that there's there's so many things that could fall mm. under the ACEs, ACEs mm. heading, but those are the ones yeah. we just kind of, you know, the big the big categories. Mm.
2: So, Dr. B, if these ACEs occur, you know, before the age of 18, and you already mentioned just a few kind of fascinating examples of what the implications or consequences mm-hmm. could be. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about... What happens in adulthood potentially when aces occur?
3: When aces occur in adulthood, or what?
2: No, when they occur in children. What are, What are those kind of ramifications? What do they look
3: like in adulthood? Consequences. Okay, yeah. So yeah. Aces. When aces occur, when an adverse experience happens, which I will just generally say trauma, then it's yeah. going to have an an impact on the child or an adult or an adolescent because it's a trauma. It wouldn't be a trauma if it if it didn't have a consequence. So it can lead to depression, anxiety in adulthood. It can lead to there are higher rates of suicide for people with high ACE scores or, you know, high ACE experiences. Mm-hmm. But I also want to Plug the positive experiences and positive relationships because just because people have high trauma or a high number of aces, those aces can be mediated by as little as one loving, attuned relationship where somebody is there to support somebody through that trauma. Mm. And and that's yeah. really where my work is. I did my dissertation on resiliency, which is what is the outcome of that person being the support system or creating an environment where we, we build resilience so people can overcome and thrive from adversity.
1: Uh, this is just a more specific question going back to the personal side mm-hmm. of ACEs. I'm just curious, uh, more of the like, the missing versus the obvious, um, like the neglect versus the obvious abuse, both both of them are abuse, abuse, right? But I'm curious, is it, and I'm maybe revealing some personal things here with this question, but is it harder to uncover or name what is neglectful rather than more obvious in childhood? As an adult, does that make sense?
3: It does make sense I think if I'm if I'm hearing what you're saying is that obviously physical abuse is more visual like we can see it. Right. And we respond to it much more quickly and much more dramatically than we respond to neglect because one mm-hmm. neglect is hard to see. And number 2 we really don't believe that neglect has as powerful an impact on a child mm-hmm than physical abuse does. The reality is the exact opposite. Hmm. Neglect actually has much more powerful consequences, especially left untreated and unaddressed, than physical abuse. Because if you think about it, if I come in front of you with a black eye, you're going to say to me, Hey, what happened? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that looks like it really hurt and yeah. what can I do for you? So you get when children who are physically abused and it's identified, they're often validated in their reality that it's mm-hmm. happening. When there's neglect, especially if kids don't even have an experience of what neglect Uh, the opposite of neglect, a non-neglectful space looks like, or relationship, then they just, this is just the norm. It's very difficult to first identify and recognize it as a child, as even a problem, but rarely did any adults, do adults come in and validate or acknowledge that as a problem either. So the consequences of neglect are actually quite a bit more significant than the consequences of physical abuse because we we see the we see the results and we can actually and in a lot of cases child protective services will not show up unless there are physical marks on a child. Mm-hmm. So, that leaves yeah. kids really in a very, very, um, you know, I mean, if you don't have food, shelter, water, heat, you know, or a, 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 the ability to cool yourself down or a, a, take care of yourself, or especially as a baby, yeah, then, you know, you're at risk of dying, just right. like mm-hmm. you would be in front of a very violent caregiver.
1: Right, that makes sense. And is mm-hmm. it... Is it what's called the the infant strange experiment, where you watch the baby, and like the the mother is completely
3: yes yeah, still neglect, face neglectful
1: in her entombment. Um yeah. yeah, still face. Yes,
3: still face. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that do you want me? To, I can explain that yeah, very that'd quickly. Yeah, please do. So the still face experiment actually is one of my favorite to to use as a teaching tool because what happens is babies are born and they are completely helpless. If we just Birth the baby, set them aside, leave them alone. They're, I mean, pretty much they're gonna die, like without care. They need care. So the first thing that a baby does after birth is boom, make eye contact with a caregiver in the room. Because what happens is there's a flood of neurochemicals, particularly interestingly, towards dads, fathers, because all of a sudden these Massive protective hormones and neurochemicals are flooded into the brain that say, I need to protect this little thing, and they fall in love. Mm. And mothers have already fallen in love because they've been carrying this Mm -hmm. thing in their body for 10 months. So we do this. So this is now the dad's opportunity to be like, oh, my gosh, now I'm completely hooked. And anybody who is a parent Especially dads that I've talked to are like, "Oh yeah, like you could just feel the tension if you're gonna mess with their baby." So the still face. So babies are hypersensitive to micro emotions. So we're like, "Oh hey, I'm smiling. Eh, you know, I'm happy. You know, you're not you're not getting." But if I as soon as I do this on the screen,
1: hmm,
2: yeah.
3: Now, how uncomfortable is that for everybody? Like, <laughs> yeah. I tried to hold it just a little extra, just so you guys would get to like make a point, yeah. like to get uncomfortable. It's like, oh my yeah, god, I need where... a break, actually. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: yeah, where did she go? Like, what the hell? I've never seen her act like that. The baby, the baby is like. Exactly. It, you know, emotionally, they're doing the emotional without the verbal words of what the hell. They're like, yeah, what mm. happened? Where did my person go? I know that if I smile, they're going to smile back because mirror neurons, you know, mm. it's mm-hmm. almost difficult. Like if I smile at you, you can hardly not smile back at some level. Mm-hmm. So, so when you do this, what happens with the baby is, they first question like what's going on? Something is wrong here. Babies are way smarter than we give them credit for. And then when the when the parent holds it longer, it gets more uncomfortable and then babies will try whatever tricks they have. And all babies have their own tricks that they use, you know, they'll point at something or whatever. They'll jump and smile or they try their tricks. And then if the person the parent stays flat-faced, emotionless, then they begin to dysregulate. They begin to just fall apart emotionally. Mm. Just like I could have, in a a weird way, you started to feel that, like what that could feel like. Mm -hmm. If somebody you really love and care about and need, and need on a different level, I mean, we're all old enough to just walk away, but if you when somebody does that to you shuts you out emotionally we all feel that oh my gosh like yeah, yeah. i don't i like that feels terrible and you can feel your body activating into the anxiety mm-hmm. the fear the scare and that's our polyvagal system getting there's a danger here something's wrong like my person is not doing what they're supposed to do and the normal things i do are not working yeah. I need mm. help. And that was so such important research in infants, in infant research, but it's also important research just in the adult world because we also do not like that. Nobody likes to have that emotional. We we rely so much on people's expressions, body language, micro-emotions in order to survive. People people get all hung up on the words, but really the words mean nothing without the emotion behind them. Yeah. You know, I think 10% is is like the words, and wow. 90% mm-hmm. is all the other stuff.
0: You mentioned babies have tricks, and I imagine there's probably some correlation to any type, that's the beginning of our strategies coming online of how do I get the thing that I want? And that's... I. Not to make a false correlation there, but that just does sound yeah. very familiar and, and a probable, yeah. probabilistic way of where that begins.
2: Yeah. Well, that does beg the question. You know, we are a, a podcast that most of the time is about the enneagram and this yeah. kind of realm of personality. So I'm curious then where does personality come into play and from your expertise, how does, how does personality develop? Cause there's all these really simple understandings in the Enneagram world about personality development. And so yeah. it'd be nice to have an expert in early childhood development. Tell yeah. us how personality forms uh, since yeah. that's a lot of the world that we live in. Yeah.
3: I think that personality for one from, it's not just one easy answer, one yeah. simple thing. So, l- we start with genetics, you know. Yeah. We got genetics. They play a role. There's no denying it that, you know, who you become is influenced not only by your genetic, you know, parents, but also their parents and the, their ancestors before them. And we do know now that trauma is carried forward epigenetically through through our genes. So yeah. from one one generation to another, which contributes, which is why a child maybe seems so much like their great grandpa and you're like, what? Um or maybe run down the a similar behavioral path. A second thing, so we got genetics. then we have temperament and temperament comes online also at birth. Like it's online at birth. Okay. So temperament is, Sort of in three simple categories fearful, fearful or shy, cautious, slow to warm, flexible, oh, pretty easy. Like I'm not going to just run into your arms, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm pretty flexible in terms of connecting and engaging with somebody as long as I feel safe. And then there's the feisty. And this kid often gets, you know, labeled as the hyper one or the, you know, difficult child.
0: Mm-hmm. And this
3: happens right at the beginning. We often don't call them difficult until they're 5 but or 3. But they're the kiddo who doesn't sleep on a regular schedule, doesn't eat on a regular schedule or easy foods or they're by, you know, they have really high intense reactions to things or no reaction to it. And so that's important in terms of personality development because that plays into it that's your personality now let's add a parent Mm. let's add a parent who has one temperament with a child who has a different temperament and if parents aren't aware of temperament matching they can just be constantly bombarding i have this experience with my old my youngest son who is very slow to warm he's very you know He's an introvert. He, you know, and I'm an extrovert and I'm, you know, moving all like change all the time. And so it's important for me to match my temperament to him in order to parent him the best I can. Now I've told him this as an adult now. He's an adult and I'm like, I'm so sorry I didn't do this with you as much. Cause I probably just rattled his cage a lot as a little guy because I was always, you know, come on, let's go do this. Come on, let's go do that. And he's like, yeah. oh, overwhelmed, overstimulated yeah. by my energy. And so that plays into personality. And then experiences. And this is where I think with you guys, the stories. These yeah. the, the the stories come in. We have experiences with people, places, things, and then we write the stories based on our genetics, based on our temperament, based on our experience. Because if your temperament is slow to warm and somebody else's temperament is feisty, you can have the same experience and you're gonna write a different story. That was Mm -hmm. crazy, that was overwhelming, I hated that. I don't wanna do that ever again. Oh my gosh, that was so fun, let's do it. Let's do it again. Mm
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm a twin and oh, so wow. we we had the same experience growing up but interpreted it very
3: differently, right? Ab- mm. Absolutely. And yeah. when when people say that, I would always question, did you really have the same experience? Cuz really mm-hmm. siblings in the same house and twins even, you shared the same you you shared the same womb, but mm. even in the same household, Mm. Different people, parents, can treat children very differently. Right. Based on, even if, I mean, even your sibling, are you identical? No. You're fraternal. Okay, so Mm -hmm. even more so that birth order still plays a role. Mm -hmm. So birth order for the children. Mm. So one's an oldest and one's a youngest, unless there's another child. So those things influence but parents love to say, "You know, I treat my children all the same mm. bullshit I'm gonna call bullshit <laughs> yeah no that's you don't so true no, yeah. you yeah. don't you yeah. you know what you just don't mm-hmm. and and I'm a parent of three children, and they yeah. are uh, there is no way I gave uh, my goal, and I'm a better parent today than I was then, but you know they all needed very different things at different times. And that's what we do as parents is that we provide our children ideally with what they need at the time they need it, whether their sibling needs it or not.
1: Right. Right. So, so actually, what I think I hear you saying is it's not a good thing that we would parent our kids exactly the same. (laughs) We actually want to be attuned to the specifics of what each kid needs. Yeah.
3: Yep. Exactly.
2: I have three teenagers and I've had this conversation with them so I have five okay. kids total but three are teens and
3: okay wow and I had okay. to tell one of my
2: kids you know you don't want me to parent you exactly the same <laughs>
3: no you don't that
2: actually yeah. wouldn't be fair um you know because often it comes up as an right. issue of justice or fairness yeah. right yes and,
3: yeah
2: um and but that's really hard to get through to kids when you know because their perception yeah. doesn't always match the reality right yeah,
3: yeah. And that's developmental, too, you know? I mean, yeah. they, they're not all of their... How old's your oldest teen?
2: Oldest is 16, yeah.
3: Okay, so 16 at max. They're still 10 years, like 8 to 10 years away from their brain yeah, being fully developed. Right. And really, that's like 13 to 16 is actually kind of a repeat of development. It's like a refining development of the brain from toddlerhood. Yeah, Okay, so me, 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 mine, 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 I, I, I. That's what early teens are refining from the first time they did it in Mm -hmm. toddlerhood. Interesting. It's Mm. because then when they get into adulthood, now they've had two phases of toddlerhood. So sometimes you get to Mm. put yourself first, but you also sometimes have to put (laughs) other people first.
1: (laughs) Interesting, (laughs) Uh,
2: I like that. Yeah. yeah. And my kids love it when I remind them that their brains aren't fully formed or developed yet. They, oh, I'm sure. They that. really yes. appreciate it when I <laughs> yeah.
0: make sure to remind them
2: about that.
3: You're still adding cars. Like the yeah. The, yeah. Found, the infrastructure's there, but you're still adding cars, guys. There's mm. like still cars to be added.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good image. Yeah. yeah. So then I guess maybe that does bring up a question in terms of the stories that kids kind of live, right? And, and their personality and their temperament, how do we as parents or people who just are in relationship with children, whether, you know, Creeks and uncle, for instance, right. And cares very deeply about that role. I mean, what, what advice would you give us for helping, you know, to, to not do so much harm (laughs) (laughs) and, and to, to love children well uh, knowing that you know they are living these stories, uh, their personality and their temperament plays a big role. Do you have any advice?
3: Tons of it, you know, probably too much. But um. <laughs> other than <laughs> listening to your
2: podcast, what would be other like maybe listen- one or two things that you that would be helpful for us to know?
3: Okay, so this is the goal: is to really get adults in tune with children and yeah, committed great. to the process of growing children from the beginning through the stages, so that we don't have to figure this stuff out as adults that happened to us as children, that yeah. we really can clean, you know, things are still going to happen, but they're the the normal things. Or if something bad does happen that we know that this is, this is where we intervene with, you know, loving, caring adults are always available and around. I think that generationally, which is something Seth and I talk about or Creek and I talk about on... <laughs> Delusional optimism is that millennials and beyond are raising children to talk more about their feelings and are invested in having harder conversations with younger children and, and bringing them into the fold in a way that is very important, where we would never have talked to children about, you know, sex when they were five, or let's make it even harder. How about sexual abuse? at a with a five-year-old it you know in my generation like nobody ever talked to me about any of that when I was five. Mm. I mean that's just like unheard of. Yeah. And yet I have a book on my shelf right here, a kid's book about sexual abuse. And it's the it's a book it's a book publishing company where they actually write books for adults to read with children, not to children, but with children. Mm in order to have difficult conversations in age-appropriate ways because we aren't necessarily taught how to have a conversation about there's one on being non-binary, there's one on um, depression, there's one on belonging or bullying. So Hmm. all these concepts that are very important that kids are going to know about whether we talk to them about it or not, Mm. Now we're bringing everybody into the fold and having shared conversations in appropriate ways. Mm. Kids can ask questions. I listen to my granddaughter and Seth. I know we've talked about this with your um, your niece, right? That they're just they're just brilliant. I mean, they know so much stuff. My granddaughter says to me all the time, like, "Baby, some snakes are egg bearing, and other snakes." Have live births, and I'm like, okay, I'm 54. I had no idea that snakes—some of them laid eggs, and some of them had live births. And you know, she she just has so much information about mm-hmm. so many things because she's ex- it's accessible to her in ways that yeah. are different. Mm-hmm. But on an emotional level, she needs me to still do all the things that a little still needs. Like she still likes to cuddle and read books and yeah. you know.
2: Yeah, that's good, that's good. Shared conversations in appropriate ways, that's a.
3: Shared conversations in appropriate ways. That's good. I have one more. Yeah. Can I, I'll tell it to you that. Um, Please. And this is something that I've learned as a grandparent. This is something that became really important to me when I knew I was gonna become a grandparent That I wanted my grandchild, and she just happens to be a girl, my granddaughter, to know me and for me to be able to share insights, wisdom, stories with her her whole life. So, one of the things that I did, and I, I don't know like how this actually came to me, but I took my daughter when she was pregnant, the last three weeks of her pregnancy, on a trip, just her and I, and our baby, and her baby. And I took a horseshoe and I picked it. I have a spot that I go to at the beach in California where it's sort of it's where I spread my dad's ashes. And it's a very mm. it's a very meaningful place for me. So at that spot, I buried a hor- this horseshoe in a in a spot on the beach with a map of where it is so she could treasure hunt for it someday. Oh, and I wow. made a book mm. about it. And I so I made this little, you know, you can get books for five bucks, you yeah. know, on photo free or whatever it's called. And I made um so I made her a book about this trip her and her mom and I her mom and I took before she was born, in this horseshoe and that she has treasure at the beach for her to find someday. And then there's other parts in that book that are just BB things that about how excited mm-hmm. I am. But just this past month, I was back down there and she knows about her treasure and she's never gotten to go there yet but i was there and she couldn't go with me and i and i took more treasure and i created a new treasure at same spot a little bit different location from the the horseshoe but i buried different things that are meaningful to me around my dad and now i made her a new book treasure her treasure second treasure book That talks about some of the things that are are important to me related to my dad, her great-grandpa, who she never will meet, but this is, these are stories and messages that I want her to remember. But if I leave them to, if Mm. I leave them to her at six, she probably won't remember them as clearly Mm. as having something concrete from me when it's very intense for me. Mm. Okay. It's an in, it's, a, it's a time for me to share when I'm actually having the emotional connected yeah. experience mm-hmm. and to share that story with her for her to hold on to forever in a physical way.
2: Yeah. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah it does.
3: And parents mm-hmm. can do it. Parents can do it with their kids. I just happened to, I didn't think, I didn't know to do that as a parent. Now I want parents to do that. Yeah. But as you know i do it as a grandparent i also think parents are so busy parenting that we often don't have time as parents to do all those things that you're are different when you're a grandparent
1: yeah <clears throat> yeah
3: mm-hmm.
1: i love that well i'm curious you know in light of our season's theme this year of of story uh, you know building one um how we, how one is built uh and also like when, learning to let go of certain narratives that Maybe worked for us at one point in time, but now are the exact ones that are hindering us. I'm curious. I've, I've, in the last year, I've stumbled across this this uh, terminology of a coherent narrative, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure you know what that is. And I, I'm, uh, I wonder if you could speak to us about because it sound it could sound like it's inevitable where we are going to be damaged, and that's the rest of our life. <laughs> but what's the hopeful thing about how we can? Re, because neuroscience is telling us we are malleable, right? How do we? What does it look like to build a coherent narrative?
3: Beautiful. That's such a great question, Abram, Um, and so important as we are learning and uh, exploring neuroscience and the brain and the plasticity across the Mm -hmm. lifespan. So even Mm -hmm. though, yeah, we're fully developed at twenty-four to six, whatever, around there, we still can change our brain until we die. Like, that's, mm. that's you know, our brain wires where our brain fires. And as long as our brain is firing, we are alive. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. that's important to remember, that we are continuously able to, to change. We just do, we're more impacted by that firing at certain stages of life, you know. Mm. Mm. Bigger things are happening in infancy and adolescence. Yeah. And then women at 40, there's a there's another reorganization of the brain and there 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 is a version of that too if for men but if you wow. think about menopause and you know the reorganization of the brain and the neurochemicals and and the hormones in the body depleting and really changing the identity perspective and so that's a whole other episode but um but in terms of changing the narrative and the coherent narrative in order to heal is really what we're we're talking about mm-hmm. is taking those stories that were built as children or young people or even things that we've perpetuated in our adult lives you know i'm never i'm not i'm not good enough to do that i'm not good enough i can't do that um i'm not worthy of blah 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 all the the stories uh that we have in our heads that make up who we are and what we tell ourselves are we then they become self-fulfilling prophecies in a way we sabotage Mm. we end up sabotaging our own successes wins happy moments because these negative recordings are in our brains and and really throughout our body right So, what we can do when this is what coherent narrative means is to take, and I literally, literally really in a lot of ways just did this again for myself because we have to do this over and over and over again in our lives Hmm. to fine tune that new narrative that makes Mm -hmm. sense and to let go of parts that are, they're just not serving us anymore and because I work in trauma, I literally just did a three-day intensive trauma sort of, I call it the tune-up, with my own psychologist out, wow. of t- out of town, and it's intense. You know, I did art, I did music, I did walking, I did meditating, I did hypnosis, I did therapy therapy, so a lot of things that went into that, but part of the process is going through my narrative and then refining it. It's like writing an essay that you have a draft of, and then you say, okay, this is part of the draft that I can let go now, or I can rewrite and mm-hmm. put it into something that makes more sense and is more reflective of this day today and who I am today, and then start really living that narrative rather than the narrative that was that really we, in a lot of ways, inherited or it's the first draft. Yeah. It's the first draft, and a lot of people walk around living the first draft their entire mm-hmm. lives. But when we think about, yeah. when we think about, and I would, I, I don't think everybody needs to go to clinical therapy or, you know, like have a therapist. I don't think that. That's why I do what I do on an educational, you know, I think broadband is a better way of sharing mm. this. Because that's not once you hear that you can now do it. Hmm. Find somebody hmm. who can help you write your narrative, and it doesn't yeah. have to be a clinical psychologist. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know. I mean, hopefully, we're gonna we're gonna create trauma experts in just the general population. We want everybody to understand this, so yeah. then we help each other do it without Mm -hmm. it needing to be so then we save the specialists for the really hard stuff the really hard Mm. stuff
1: yeah Mm. so do i I think what i hear you saying is a way to metabolize our story is to tell it
3: tell it write it and refine it right and refine it and, and yeah. edit it, yeah. edit it. Yeah. Yeah, so whatever your medium is for telling your story is, you can tell it, you can write it, you can paint it, you can run it, you can do your story however you want to do your story that feels good. But editing it and refining it and fine-tuning it all the time is part of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, to follow up with that, I'm curious how, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of modalities or ways you'd engage this, but how do we uncover stories that we might be unaware of? Ooh. Like implicit memory yeah. versus explicit.
3: So good, so good. This is my favorite topic, infant mental health, ghosts in the nursery. Oh. So ghosts, <laughs> those are your ghosts that are in your brain because you don't have a concrete. So here's how this works pre-verbal memories if you have an experience that's scary painful traumatic sad before you had the word painful scary sad traumatic Mm -hmm. you can't say you really hurt my feelings that made me sad Mm -hmm. all you have in your body is that sense of you know ache of painful Mm -hmm. sadness in your body as a nonverbal implicit memory, Mm. or fear. And this is the root of anxiety. And sometimes the root of aggression, I mean, not aggression, depression, where anger is turned inward. You know, a baby might visually see their parent being physically abused, but they're a baby. They don't have words Mm. for what's happening, but they're mad about it, sad about Mm. it, scared about it. All those feelings are in their body, but they have no words. Hmm. So all they can do is grow up and like re-activate that same story and do the same thing unless it gets disrupted. So what we need to do is to be able to help people find their historical story from... People who know grandparents, friends of the family, older mm. siblings. I happen to have an older sibling who's 13 years older. So I use her as my historian sometimes mm. to say, you know what? I feel like this happened. And, you know, what like what was I like when I was four? You know? What was I, you know, what this is these are, you know, I kind of have a sense of certain things, but she really can give me more information and sure it's through her perception but it's better than my version and so being our own historians and being finding people who can be historians for us and help us to remember and understand what somebody was like or what the experience was like as a baby I happen to be the parent of a child who came to me through adoption. He came to me at four and a half years old. Hmm. His name's Joe. He's yummy. I adore him. He's <laughs> 33 now. And, oh, he, 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 he could be a pill sometimes. But I met his biological father, and so did he. We met him together. Actually, I met him first. I picked him up and brought him to my house to meet Joe. Joe. When Joe was about maybe 18, 19, 17, 18, 19, something like that, an older teenager. And I got to sit with this man who I didn't know ever, like I had no relationship with in any way, you know. And he talked about my son, my boy, as an infant. Hmm. And he told me stories. And he told Joe stories, because we were together, about how he was as a baby, which was like, boom, connecting these dots that I feel like was such a huge gift for me because it really explained a piece of him that I missed. Hmm. But it also was exactly who he was. Like, I knew exactly this boy was a squirmy sleeper he ate and you know he his metabolism was on fire he he could have eaten every probably 3 hours and just <laughs> burn it you know so that's where getting historical information i think for joe my my son it was it was so important to for him in grounding his experience because yeah. he didn't leave that family you know he left that family because of trauma so he mm-hmm. um So, he has an early birth, young baby story that I, you know, I can help with to some degree, but I can't fill the pieces in because I wasn't there either.
1: I will say that I've inadvertently been able to do some uh, healthy work because of my twin brother who has memories of growing up, and I don't. And I've asked him, what was, you know, just different experiences? What, What happened when... I I just have zero memory and he's, I've gotten to uh, uncover a few things and to process it with him and wow. it's been it's been really, really helpful and so just how you said that it's been so accurate for me uh, yeah. especially mm-hmm. as I've read that avoidant attachment styles tend to not have much uh, that they remember growing up. Yeah, I think that I just from my experience that's yeah. been so accurate. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: and mm-hmm. And there are things too that are more involved like Doing hypnosis, walking yourself back with a safe and and skillful therapist is re- can be very powerful. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I was not a hypnosis believer. <laughs> like I'm like, oh please, I could never be hypnotized. Okay, so <laughs> hypnosis isn't like what you think of the thing that happened in high school where they run around with the chick, you know, whatever. Those kind. Of, <laughs> yeah. It's not that. And so finding somebody who's really skillful in, you know, doing depth therapy. This is a whole different level of counseling or then, you know, counseling is, there's a lot of different modalities of therapy, as you, I know you guys know. But there are some that are just behavioral change, different kinds of things. But then there are places where you go really deep. And this is where we do deep work and we find out sort of our, you know where do where does our trauma get lodged in our body and mm-hmm. how do we how do our body informs our mind and our mind informs our body? So wow, I feel like you know I hold a lot of things in my heart and in my voice, my throat because it's where your voice mm-hmm. is like I need to say this. but that's you know we can find those places in our bodies if we if we can work with somebody who, knows how to do that in a in a safe way and in a loving way. And I'm gonna plug my own I'm gonna plug my own therapist, Dr. Ginger Swanson in Santa Barbara, because she's she has really helped me to get into touch in touch with places that, you know, and I've I've been doing this work for my whole adult life. And, you know, when you find somebody who's really good, it's it's a it's a gift. It really is. Yes. So I
2: don't have a question, but just a comment that you know I, I'm taking notes that are going to sit with me for quite a while, and so and I'm sure that that's true for our listeners too. That these concepts of share shared conversations in appropriate ways, edit and refining your stories for coherence, and finding a historian to help you make sense, you know, of your story, those are really powerful, I think, yeah. things mm. for us to all take with us and work on. So I'm, I'm just really thankful. Mm. So. Not a question, but just Thanks. just wanted
1: to express gratitude for that. Thank you. Thank you. I have I have lots more questions, but I don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't think uh
2: well, let's have the, it, the time will have you back. Yeah. Abram
3: <laughs> Abram, you can always just call me and we can just have a conversation. It doesn't have to be on a podcast. You can just call me and say, hey, I want to know about this because it's fine. I don't mind sharing information.
1: I have become entirely enamored with your expertise. So, all the things that make up what you do for a living. So,
3: thank you. I'm so flattered and appreciative of that. And so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to share and I want I want you to be able to take what I know from my experience of life because I'm older, mm. and combine it with your intellect of what you've learned to this point in life experience, and then you know we just build it out. We just have to keep building it out because mm. that's how we're gonna change, mm-hmm. change things. So, right. Yeah. right.
1: I, I I will say uh, one final thing. Just some of the some of the stuff I've connected. I guess, if in a sentence, is that. You actually probably cannot, you don't have the capacity to tune emotionally into your children if you don't have, if you don't learn that capacity yourself, to tune into yourself, right?
3: I would say that none of us have the capacity to tune into anybody if we can't tune into ourselves some of the time, Hmm. okay? Because some of it's Mm -hmm. automatic, right? You know what? I can just tune into my partner without going through a really deep cognitive thinking process like i need right. to do this or mm-hmm. tune into my granddaughter or my tr- anybody you know i can tune into someone emotionally without a lot of work but if we're going to really high level tune into somebody and have a deep conversation that's emotional that's emotional or emotionally charged yeah it's mm-hmm. important to be able to get your grounding in first So we've got to get ourselves sensitive, grounded, listening, you know, able to not be activated on instantaneously. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: That's what's important. Mm -hmm. But you don't I want you all to leave knowing that even though this is complicated work. There is so much more to resilience and so much more positive that comes out of negative experiences than negative. There are, think Mm. about how many stories Mm. there are of triumph over trauma. There are a lot more stories like that than there Mm. are that end in just trauma. And so, in some ways, probably this is why delusional optimism exists (laughs) good does overpower bad in a lot of ways you know it takes Mm. less it takes less positive to squelch negative
1: Mm.
0: Mm.
3: especially if we time it right
0: Mm. Yeah, that's good yeah that's it's a perfect ending note and i know like Doctor B you and I always end a lot of these like early childhood development parenting things of of like it what you're talking about, I'm sure it's like parents are overwhelmed with all this information and, and when do I do this? And when do yeah. I it's just show up and be the loving, compassionate parent and you don't have to be perfect. Exactly.
3: Yes. And
0: you're you're gonna be okay. Totally. Just keep loving your kid as best as you know how. Yeah. Ryan, and when
3: you and when you mess up, her. just say, you know what? Wow, I really like I messed up and I want to just talk to you about that and and, yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and model for them like how to recover from a mess up. No big deal. We all mess yeah, up.. It's beautiful. You know what? Just mess up, fix it, yeah. go back. It's So good. We don't have to mm-hmm. be perfect Wonderful. for our children either
1: yeah yeah that's why i really like the language of of uh the framework of good enough parenting which sounds like half-assed parenting (laughs) but it's not it's just (laughs) it's 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 acceptance of the fact that you're not gonna be perfect but right what -hmm. you're doing enough of it is incredibly valuable yeah
3: so valuable Mm -hmm. yes show up Mm -hmm. just show up and then it's just better from there it gets better from there Mm -hmm. but show up
1: yeah
0: Mm -hmm. yeah uh dr b how can people find you book you um well they can benefit from your expertise always
3: jump on the podcast delusional optimism Mm -hmm. with dr b and seth creekmore or they can find me at my website www.drbconnections.com and pretty much there you can you can track me down on linkedin and all the other spots yeah so awesome yeah Thanks. I was going to ask
1: you real Wonderful. quick, what was sure. the name of those books that you were naming earlier for that you can read oh, with your kids?
3: So, and I'm going to plug, I am actually getting to write a book called Whoa. A Kid's Book About Resilience in yes. 2020. So I'm right. really excited, so excited about that. But let me show you, um, so we'll put Jelani's in. He's the book founder and the company, well, he was on our podcast. So it's a kid's book about oh. racism. This was the first one. Jelani Memory is the, founder of the company and now they've mm -hmm. just changed the business from a Mm -hmm. kid's book about kid uh, like a kid's book about for kids Mm -hmm. to a kid's company about (laughs) so um so there's lots of these um but yeah it's 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 they
0: also have a kid's podcast about which i've listened to a few episodes and they do such a wonderful job Mm. yes they do which Yep.
3: such an awesome so. job and they now have baby books wow a little oh a little book about fear a little book about family oh my goodness oh my gosh but wait here's my favorite <laughs> my two other favorites look at this a kids book about bravery Aw. Mm. wow and in case you want to keep them busy a kids book about activism <laughs> so these are getting sent to my um my great nephews so yeah yeah. so babies even you know like starting that conversation with babies
0: thank you so much all right right. thanks guys
3: so good yeah always you You have my phone number so um anytime abram if you want to chat just call me thank you okay all right take care guys bye
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, and Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time.